Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are precious to us. If indeed we understand who you are and just what you did for us. We see you all too often as a fixer of our problems and not as the savior of our sin. Your word tells us that as long as we look at ourselves and we are the judges of our lives, that there is no real concern about sin. Your word says we don't even know what it is. That we are alive. That when the law comes, we die. And so our condition is much worse than needing a fix. It is that we need life. That we need your breath to breathe on us anew in a fresh way. Make us born again as you did to the very dry bones in Ezekiel's day. That the word of God was what gave them life. But it is also the law of God that gives us death. And today, this morning, Lord, I beckon that all of the people here, Lord, to come and to die, that they might live. This is what your word tells us, that unless we die, we shall not live. Unless we lay this morning at the foot of the cross all of our wicked deeds, all of our sins, That there can be no life. It is my prayer as I preach the word today that you will give life to dead bones. That those who think they are alive apart from Jesus Christ will see that they are dead apart from Jesus Christ. And that you by your spirit will give them new life. This is the way that you have seen it to be that we must first identify our sinfulness, so that we might identify Jesus as Savior. So, Lord, be among us and move among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I have one main goal today, and it's going to sound like it's two, but it's really one. And that is to convince each and every one of you this morning, each and every one of you, even veteran Christians, of your sinfulness and your sinful nature before God. If I can convince you that you are utterly sinful and dead in your sins, I've done my job this morning. But also to get you to respond and for the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do to get you to respond to new life in Christ Jesus. In 2003, the Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker wrote a controversial book entitled The Blank Slate. In it, he argued against the notion that 
human beings are born with a blank slate. That is the idea that human personalities and desires are not, he argued that human personalities and desires are not something that society gives to us, but that's something that we are born with. We are born with a real human nature. This was controversial, very controversial. Someone might say, especially Christians, what's so controversial about arguing that human beings are born with a true human nature? Well, to many in our culture today, human nature is a choice rather than an inheritance. We all make a choice for what we want to be. We are often fed the myth, especially in our schools when we are children, that we can be anything we want to be. It sounds very positive, but how often do we stop to ask the question whether or not it is true? The notion that human beings are born with certain genetic and psychological and, yes, even moral predispositions opened up the possibility, according to Pinker's critics, to discriminate, which is the great sin of our time. To assume that people are born certain ways. Pinker noted that human beings are more similar than we might at first think. Anthropologist, says Pinker, would like us to believe, by the way, anthropologists are those who study man, what it means to be human, the origin of man, what society looks like, how man has progressed. Anthropologist, says Pinker, would like us to believe in cultures where everything is virtually the opposite of what we do here, but that that is simply not the case. He literally gave hundreds of examples, including weather and weapons and war and art and morality as similarities across the spectrum of human civilization. That we are actually more similar than we might at first think otherwise. Pinker especially noted and took for granted that human beings everywhere seem to be born with a sense of right and wrong. That has recently been corroborated. Smithsonian Institute published an article in 2013 that went through a battery of tests showing that children, newborn children to the age of two, Infants overwhelmingly choose good behavior over bad behavior when they see it in others. Isn't that interesting? That we see what ought to be the case in others and how often do we see what ought to be the case in our own lives? Jesus said as much, right? You know, if you just wait around long enough, the Bible will prove itself over and over. What did Jesus say? We are good at finding the speck in our brother's eye and we're walking around with a beam in our own. And it seems that human beings are created 
just that way. C.S. Lewis, not a scientist like Dr. Pinker, merely a philosopher, noted as much about culture in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis said this, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or of decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities. If you're going to any secular institution or you're a product of the public school, certainly you have heard that different civilizations prove that morality is not absolute. Absolute means right and wrong for everyone, everywhere, always. Certainly you've heard that. But this is not true, says Lewis. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very like they are to each other and to our own. Great scientists and great philosophers alike share the opinion that human nature seems to be at its most basic level aware of a right and wrong absolute standard. But the question that I want to answer this morning is the only question that ultimately, I didn't say only, I said ultimately, mainly matters for us, for human beings everywhere, and that is this question, what does the Bible say about human nature? What does God say about human nature? You see, we're appealing to a different sort of knowledge. A knowledge of revelation. Not what we've learned through scientific experimentation or through philosophical reflection, but through simply depending upon God's worthiness, God's word, God's truthfulness. So whether or not science and philosophy shows that human beings are born with a sense of right and wrong and a behavior pattern, the big question is, what does God say? Well, let's look at some relevant texts this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you some texts you can turn there. I'm going to move through them very rapidly and pick the main parts and pick the main points, okay? The first one is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And what I want to do is I want to, to map out what the Bible tells us about what human nature was made to be and what human nature has become. So Christian, you are always living with this distinction. When you are thinking about what it means to be human... The Christian must always live with the distinction between what God intended and what ultimately became as a result of the fall. So that what we're looking at today, what we observe in human beings today, is not actually what God intended originally. 
it is different. So that if we are to learn what humans ought or should be, we should not look to a sinful human nature to answer that question. And we do. We see men justify this to their wives, especially those who are immoral. They say, what do you expect? After all, I'm a man. I had to sleep with her. I had to look at that. I'm a man. Well, that's not an excuse. And furthermore, looking at what human beings are in this condition is no defense of what they ought to be. Scripture tells us the story. It's different than that. It is not looking around and seeing what men and women do today that gives us any real insight. It's what God intended men and women to be and how they have fallen from that intention. Look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Verse 26, we learn that God made, and we've been doing this study ourselves. This is a quick review, but that God makes man after his image and likeness. That is that man has been made to resemble God and to be holy as God is holy. We were made to be like God. We weren't made to fulfill ourselves, to find ourselves. We were made to worship God. If you want to find the ultimate meaning of life, it is in worshiping God. It is outside of yourself. You cannot find the meaning of life by finding the self. You find the meaning of life by worshiping God. We were made in his image and in his likeness. And the closer we resemble God, the closer we are to being what it means to be truly human. Verse 27, God made man, male and female. They are co-equal yet distinct. And in this distinction and in their co-equality, they reflect, reflect God's unity and diversity. Yes, we know that God is one in essence, but that God is Father. God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. There is distinction, dare I say, even subordination. That the Son submits himself willingly to the Father's law. That the Holy Spirit reflects away from himself and points everyone back to Jesus. And that the Father himself gives all glory to the Son. The entire relationship within the Holy Trinity is other-directed. And this is why God made man and woman. This is why he made two human beings. They are to give of themselves to the other. And we are to give of ourselves to other human beings who are not part of the society of our marriage or of the institution of our marriage. Verse 28, God blesses this union of male and female by giving them the ability to make more humans to bear his image, filling the entire earth. The only way to fulfill the creation mandate is to follow God's creation pattern. One man, one woman. Now, yes, you can do that synthetically today in test tubes and in petri dishes through intrauterine insemination, gamut, uh, gamut, um, or what they call gift, gamut intrafallopian, uh, I forget what the T is, someone here might know, transfer, 
where uh, women are given hormones to, re to produce more eggs at once. Those eggs are collected. They put them in a Petri dish. And those who cannot conceive children naturally, they, the man donates his sperm. The woman is given gamut intrafallopian transfer. Those eggs are coming out. They take those. They put them in a Petri dish. And they can make life outside of the womb today. That's not how God made it. I'm not making any moral stance about that, but I do want us to ask the question, is that what God intended us to do? Verse 28, God gives man the earth. The earth is ours. But not ours to do whatever we, to do whatever we want with it. It is ours to subdue it and to have dominion over it. To care for the world as if it is God's. We are his vice regents. That is local kings under his authority. Our authority to take the earth, to subdue it, put it under control. That is to bring, to bring order into a chaotic situation. That is God's right that he gave to us. And to have dominion over this earth. Man was given every plant for food except for one, and we know that story. We're going to look at that in a moment. And then when God was done with everything that he had done, once he begins what, what the world, here is the created world, God has made the parameters of man, he has put him in, a, in, a, in, a, in an earth he has given him plants, he has given him animals, he has given him a help fit for him, he has given him the relationship, he has given them the, the template for society, that there is to be a head, there is to be a, someone who submits, they are to be equal, they are to use this to subdue the earth, to fill the earth. And then he looks back and the Bible says that God saw it, that, that he saw what he had done and he says, behold, the, the word behold means like, look at this. It is all very good. Why is this world good? Because God said so. God gave it its worth. You think about baseball cards or maybe, maybe paintings. Let's do a painting. And there's a show called Pawn Stars, which... Warning, that, that, that's, a, that's a play on words that I don't necessarily love. But people will bring in paintings to a, into a pawn shop and they'll lay them down and the pawn uh, store owner will make the decision of whether or not this painting is authentic. And usually if it's signed by someone who's dead or signed by someone uh, who, who did the painting, it's worth more. But they have to authenticate it. I mean, it's the same picture, all it is is ink, but what makes it worthy of something more is that that ink was touched by the person who did it. That there was that hand in his hand or her hand that they had the pen, they had the paintbrush, and they signed it. That's what makes it more. It's the same thing, it's just ink. But what makes creation so great is that God said so. Behold, it's very good. This is the way it should be. This is the way it should be forever. We get to see this for roughly two chapters of what the world should look like. Two chapters. 
Genesis 2 tells us a little more that God forms man from the earth. He gives man his dignity by breathing in God's breath into him. Woman is formed from the side of Adam. Note that he was, she was not made from his heel. This is to symbolize that woman is not under man, but she is a helper fit for him. She is equal with him. That the first woman came from man. That is challenging to some, but don't forget that every man since has come from woman. God gives to Adam and Eve every tree in the garden to eat from, and here's where the plot thickens. Except for one. Except for one. Now there are several reasons and answers to this question that people will give. I believe there's one very good answer. Some people will say that God put the tree there to make man free. I think there's warrant to that. That without the option to disobey God, man has no opportunity to love God according to his own free will. So that God has to give him a command to make him free. Without the freedom to disobey, there is no freedom to obey and to love God willingly. But I believe that scripture gives us a better answer. And it's the answer we should stand by. It is this. That God put the tree in the garden because it was always his purpose to redeem fallen humanity in Christ. Always. Paul says in Romans 5.14 that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Namely, Christ Jesus. That from the moment God said, let there be light. Actually, even before him, that the Trinity itself presupposes the fall of man and the redemption of mankind, God redeeming a sinful creation for his glory. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, Article 6, Paragraph 1, says that although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law which had been unto life, had he kept it, and he even threatened death upon the breach thereof, Yet he did not long abide in this honor, Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve. Then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating of the forbidden fruit, listen, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory. I want you to see the picture here that the confession wants us to see. It is, I believe, the true biblical picture. That is that it pleased God to allow man to fall. We may not like that. But who are we but dust? You come to the Bible as dust and tell God what he should have done? Does not the author of creation have the right to do with us as he so pleases? Fast forward to Genesis 3. The serpent tempted Eve, we know, beginning with deception about God's word, I might add. That's what Satan still does. He preys on ignorant Christians who don't know the word of God, and he comes to you with a misreading of God's word. He says, 
Now a deception about the consequences of God's word. So a false reading of God's word and then a false result of the consequences. You will not surely die, he said. Then he gives deception about God's motives. So deception about God's word, deception about the consequences of our sin, and deception about God's motives. He knows that you will be like him. And finally, he gives them deception about the future. You will know good from evil is only a half-truth. Because the rest of the story from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is a story of human beings only ever choosing to disobey God. Apart from God's intervention. That is the whole story of the Bible. Tells us the story of our sinfulness. Theologians call this the doctrine of original sin. What is original sin? It is not the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. Original sin refers to our condition Mine and your condition right now as being born sinners totally depraved of the holiness of the law that God has given and demands of us. Genesis 6, 5 through 5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Paul said, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The pocket dictionary, my favorite little dictionary, defines original sin this way. I love it. It says, strictly speaking, original state is the original sin is the state of alienation from God into which all human beings are born. Notice that it's it, it uses the concept of a separation from God. That's what alienation means, to be separated from God. And not the idea of a bad person. It's not talking about bad. And so I, I sit at this altar so many times and so many Sundays, and I try and talk to people about what it means to be a Christian, and they're telling me, standing right here, yeah, I'm a good person. Well, that's fine, but that's a red herring. That means it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. God is not concerned with whether or not we're good. The question is whether or not we're sinful. Sin has everything to do with being alienated from God. So whether you're good whether you pay your taxes and you've never lied or you've never murdered or you, you are a, a good father and a good mother, that might all be true. You might even be the most philanthropic, selfless, altruistic person in the world. But that's not the question. The question is, are you righteous? And the word righteous carries with it standing with God according to the way God has called us to stand. 
being declared innocent by God. Society will pat you on the back all the way to hell. You're a good boy, Johnny. You're a good boy, Susie. Good girl, Susie, whatever. Although, um, <laughs> they'll pat you on the back. You're good, yeah. You're great. Yeah, you can be whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Oh, be who you want. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what Satan did. That's what he did to Eve. Eve is going to be great. You're going to be like God. He came around. He probably went over his shoulder and kind of just did a little tickle of her ear. You're going to be fine. This is going to be great. You're going to be like God. You're not going to die. It's nothing to do with what God said. Are you going to stake eternity on what society tells you or what you believe or on what God has said? You see, we come to the word to find out what we really are. What is human nature? And scripture tells us that we are originally, that we are made, we are born in sin. David said, I was conceived in iniquity. Paul said that the best of our works are like filthy rags before God. They're nothing. That all men have gone astray. What in the world did Jesus come to the earth for and die if you're good? So I want you to be very aware of what scripture tells all of us this morning. You're all dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead. I read this week, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, greatest sermon ever preached in America. And it was like 20 pages of how bad hell is. And I'm thinking to myself, you couldn't preach this today. Historians study that sermon. They argue that it's one of the major catalysts that led to the Great Awakening. But the reason why Edwards preached 20 pages of just how bad hell is, is because he was going to, at the end, preach the Savior, Jesus. But we preach in the church, Jesus the fixer. He's going to fix your problems. He's going to fix your marriage. He's going to fix your diet. He's going to fix your, your money problems. He's going to fix your career. He's going to give you what you want. He's going to give you great sex. He's going to give you all of the things that you desire in this world. He's going to give you that person that you, you want. Give you that big house. He'll fix it. Jesus didn't come to be your problem fixer. He came to be your savior. Why? Because we're sinners. You can't get to God on your own. The sin is separation from God. Listen to what Paul says about this condition. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin." 
Okay, so if you want to argue with God, here's your chance. You can say, God, I don't understand. I wasn't there in the garden. Why should I be held accountable for what Adam did? If you want to have that argument, go ahead and have that argument with God. All I'm going to do is read the scriptures and tell you what it tells us. It tells us that in Adam, we're all dead. We're all sinners. We were born from Adam and Eve, our sinner parents, and we were imputed, we inherited their sinful nature. We got two things. We got their guilt and their corruption. We are guilty of their sin and we are corrupted by their sin. You know, I don't think you're as good as you think you are, by the way. That's what I like to tell most people who tell me they're good. They're probably not. I, I was watching this, this thing this past week about a, a couple that was doing these good things, and they were talking about how it just made them feel so good. And I'm thinking, so that's why you do it? Because it makes you feel good? Or do you do it from obedience? Because you want to obey God. Is it about what makes you feel good, or is it about what God has told you to do, and you want to be an obedient child of your heavenly Father? I don't think you're as good as you think you are. I certainly know my own heart. I certainly know that if God revealed my thoughts, my true motivations, that there would be shame. Christians love, I've got this ongoing debate with these three people who are wrong, um, about the word hate. And they make a distinction without a difference. Oh, hate is just this really, they know who they are, they're here. I love them and they love me. I won't tell you who they are. Oh, no, hate. Hate is such a harsh word. You got to use really dislike. Well, that's actually the definition of the word hate, to really dislike someone. And I said to the people one day, I said, listen, you need to embrace your sin. You need to embrace it. I think they've since repented. In other words, I told them, I said, you know, I've really hated people. I really have. Maybe you've never really hated somebody. But don't make a distinction that it's about you just disliking them. Because you're trying to make yourself feel better about what your true intentions are. Go ahead and like Paul, identify yourself as a wretched man. You're wretched. Wretched. Ugh. Ever seen wretched? Well, you know what wretched looks like. It just, ugh, when you see it, you're like, oh, wretched. Like, you know, it's gross. You know the word wretch means? To vomit. Ugh. Wretch. Wretched man that I am. Paul says, we've all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Paul says, listen, sin, even though the law of God had not yet come, the condition is still there. You're actually sinful, even if you don't know the law. People who don't have the law of God the Bible says, still have the law written on their heart. Paul actually says it two chapters before, three chapters before. That, that even though they may not have ever heard, thou shalt not murder, they have that written on their heart. 
and it is a law unto themselves. So they know. He goes on, he says, but now the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, all of us are dying through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So I want to remind you that you said, oh, I don't like that I'm held accountable for what Adam did. Well, I want to remind you right now, you're actually held accountable for what Christ did. So if you don't like the fact that you bear Adam's sin and that his guilt is imputed to you, that means God sees you as guilty. If you don't like that, how do you like the fact that God looks at you and imputes to you Christ's righteousness? That the work that Jesus Christ did, God gives to you who believe. It's a two-way street. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This is amazing. One man. Jesus paid it all. Remember the song? All to him we owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. Your righteousness before God, your right standing, your, your holiness is whether or not you have trusted in Christ. The Bible tells us you're a sinner. You're dead in trespasses and sin. You can't save yourself. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, but by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words... The word of God, the law comes, not for us to follow it perfectly, but to reveal to us just how utterly sinful we are. Paul says in Romans 7, when the commandment came, I died. He said, and it was interesting, he uses the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, because it's an internal commandment. It's an internal issue. No, nobody knows whether or not you're coveting right now. You know that? I, I can't read your mind. You might be coveting. But I can't tell. I can tell if you murdered somebody. right? You, that, there's evidence for that. But coveting? Paul says, I, I didn't know what that was until I read it. And when I read it, when I read the book, when I saw God's word, what it said about me, I died. Because I knew I didn't keep it. I'm begging you, come to die today. Read the word. The word says you can't please God. The Heidelberg Catechism gave three questions. Question number three of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is what they taught to children. It's what we should be teaching to children and adults today. From where does man know his misery? In other words, how do we know we're miserable? We know from the law of God. If you come down here this morning and tell me you're a good person, what you're telling me is you have not read the book. 
Because the book says you're not. That you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was a young man who was very wealthy and he came to Jesus and he ran up to him and he said, Rabbi, teacher, good teacher, I've kept everything, all of the laws. Jesus says, okay, good. You have one thing left to do. Leave everything you have and follow me. Okay, so, so you, you're going to come down here this morning and you're going to tell me you're good. Okay, okay, leave everything you have, including your righteousness, your self-righteousness, and follow Jesus. Because Jesus says you can't live until you die. And that death is a spiritual death. A recognition that we are wretched. And if we're going to have life, we have to have it in Christ alone. Where does our misery come? It comes from the law of God. The worst thing we can do in our churches today is stop preaching the law of God. Because when we stop preaching the law of God, men and women are convicted of their sin. How else can we be convicted of our sin unless we talk about it? Well, they say, that's not the way to grow a church. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to fill these seats. Our goal is to preach the word of God and he'll fill them should he choose to. Our goal is to make you sad, mad, or glad. I think all three. Well, the next question is, what does the law of God require of us? Well, Christ teaches in some that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What's the point? The point is not, did you keep the law? It's do you love it because you love the lawgiver? It's not about whether you haven't murdered. It's do you love the lawgiver? Do you want to be like the lawgiver? That was why the lawgiver made you to reflect his glory. And he gives you the law so that you might keep it and reflect his glory. But if you don't love the lawgiver, you can't be holy. But you also know this. As Jesus proved on the Sermon on the Mount. That what God was really after was our heart and not our outside morality. The Pharisees were very moral on the outside. They were, as Jesus said, they were like whited, whitewashed tombs. They were beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. Men were impressed by how good they were and how righteous they were. They'd give to the poor. They'd play a horn. I have given to the poor. I think about the Hollywood stars who try and show how tolerant they are. I adopted a baby from Africa. Praise me. Only to find out they actually stole the baby. It was actually kidnapping. I don't remember which star kidnapped children. But hey, got to play the trumpet. Got to get the glory for yourselves. Jesus says if you do that, you get all the glory. You get everything you want right then and there. You get the praise of men, that's it. But if you want the praise of God, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
when, you, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, we should all die. Oh, you're feeling good. I've never committed adultery. Have you looked at a woman with lust in your heart? Yeah. Oh, well, you're guilty of it. Well, I've never murdered. Oh, have you hated your brother? Yeah. No, no, no. I strongly disliked him. See that, God? See what I did there? Oh, you strongly disliked him. You're good. You're good. Come on in. God shows us that the problem is on the inside. Sin is not something you do before you come to Jesus. It's something you are. And then the confession asks this. It says, catechism asks this. Can man keep the law of God perfectly? And the answer is no, for I am prone by nature. Human fallen nature to hate God and my neighbor. You say, I've never hated anybody. Do you put yourself before them? Listen, Scripture has declared you are sinners. God has given a holy law and you have failed to keep it. We have all failed to keep it. And we cannot keep it. So what's the solution? When Edwards was preaching his sermon in Einfeld, Connecticut, two days after he preached the original one to his church in New Hampton, he was preaching, and as people were hearing the sermon about how bad the wrath of God is, the wrath, do we ever talk about, today we talk about God is love. God is love. Like God is a hippie somewhere. Like he's got a hookah pipe, and he's like, man, I love that. You don't know what gender you are. That's cool, dude. I'm love. That's not God. God's angry at you. So angry at you. So mad at you that there's a devil's hell waiting to consume you. It's real. It's really coming. For some of us, it could come before the day is over. None of us have anything guaranteed. Hell is real. Pastors preach it. Churches preach it. Christians preach it. It's real. And if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, you are going there. Scripture tells us that this very moment exists. That the only reason why God permits you to take the next breath is so that you might repent and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of repentance, says Peter. This is why God is patient with you. You know why God cured you from cancer? For one more chance to repent of your sins. Not to give you more life. This life is fading away. It will be burn up. Preach hell. And when Edwards was preaching this, people were coming down to the stage saying, Stop! Stop preaching! They were saying, what must we do to be saved? 
Because he was telling them first and foremost the bad news. And our churches don't do that anymore. God help us. They don't give people the really bad news. If you go to your doctor, don't you want your doctor to tell you you have cancer so that you can do something about it? Don't you want your doctor to tell you have high blood pressure so you can do something about it? Do you want your doctor to say, you're fine. I hate going to the doctor. Especially because I haven't changed anything since the last time I went. It's worse. I'm fatter. Today we're telling you the spiritual condition. Your state without Jesus is dead. Well, I'm going to ask the question for you. What must I do to be saved? How can I escape the wrath of God? Repent, believe, and be baptized into the church. There is one application for this sermon this morning. One application. You know, that's the big thing in, in sermons. When you, when you read all the books about how to be a good preacher, it's application. you got to know how to, how does it apply to me? Well, I want to apply it to you today. I want to give you the real application. It's up to you to do something about it. You've got to repent, believe, and be baptized. That's only one application. You say, that's three. No. I know math. That's one. Repentance without belief makes man seven times a devil as he was before. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you go across the sea, you go all the way over to make one man a convert, and you make him seven times worse than he was before he ever met you. Because now he thinks that he's righteous by his own works. If all you have is repentance without belief, you're not saved. Paul said, we know that no one will be saved by the works of the law. Some of you have gotten off of drugs. Some of you have put away pornography. Some of you have repented of your mishandling of your finances and of your debt. Some of you have, have become better fathers and better mothers. You have repented of your old way of life. You used to be a gangbanger and you have learned the error of your ways. But what have you turned to? I knew a mother who was so proud of her son, he had turned from gangs and he had embraced Eastern religion. And she said, you know what, just so long as he's not in gangs anymore. Oh, he was a very peaceful person. He repented. He stopped. He turned away from that life. But he didn't turn to Christ. So repentance isn't enough. Belief without repentance won't save you either. James said someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe, said James, that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, if all you have this morning is an intellectual belief, all you have is a demonic religion. 
oh, yes, I believe in God. Mm -hmm, it's right here in my head. People tell me that all the time. Yeah, I, I believe in God. It's not about a test. This isn't an intellectual question. Certainly that's part of it. Well, baptism without repentance and belief is nothing more than a bath. Oh, yeah. Ask people, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, baptized when I was a child. What? That, that was a bath. You got a bath. You're going to stand before God saying, all I've got is a bath? God, I'm clean because I'm, I, I, was, I was bathed when I was a baby. By the way, if you were sprinkled, that ain't a bath. That's not even a shower. So you're also dirty. Not only are you a rotten Christian, but you are a stinking rotten Christian. Non-Christian, I should say. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, speaking of Noah's flood, now saves you. Oh, there it is. Baptism saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, it's not the outward act of baptism that saves you. It's the heart behind it. It's the trust in what Christ did. All that is is water. It's water. The first baptism that I ever did was in that pool. And I know, I'll never forget. I walk in and I didn't know how bad that thing was. Nobody really did because we hadn't baptized people in forever. And I went in there and it was so dirty. I mean, it looked worse than like the canal off of 2nd Avenue. And I looked at the girl and I said, listen, if you don't want to do this, you don't have to. She said, no, I want to do it. But it is disgusting. And I said, I agree. And then I said to her, I'm not sure if I want to do it because I'm a germaphobe. <laughs> but she didn't know I had these little waders on, so I didn't get it on me. She's got this weird twitch now. I don't know. <laughs> She wanted to be baptized. Why? Because of her belief. It's not the removal. It's not the water. It's not, you know, we talk about holy water. Oh, it's holy water. It's not holy. It's Zephyr Hills. That water is definitely not holy, okay? We have to skim it for bugs. It does nothing. So if all you have is a baptism without faith, you don't have faith. You're not saved. If all you have is faith without works, you, you don't have real saving faith. If all you have is works and you don't have faith and you don't have baptism, you don't have salvation. You have to have all three. So that's why I say there's one application. There's just one. There is no such thing as a Christian who got saved and continued to live like hell. I remember when I was a young kid, there was a famous Tupac song called Wonder If Heaven Got a Ghetto. I, I love Tupac. You could put on Tupac. I, I'll, rap every, I'll rap every line of it. Every one of his albums. Wonder If Heaven Got a Ghetto. It doesn't. I'm going to answer it for you. And, and throughout the song, he's, he's asking the question about gangbangers and how they live. Wonder if they're going to go to heaven because, you know, I loved them. It's nothing to do with anything. Did you repent? Did you look different? 
You follow Jesus now. Do you believe is the reason why you're changed because you want to look like Jesus? And did you get baptized because you want to claim to the entire world that the only reason you're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ and you are certain about it is because he took away your sins? When Peter was preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, at the end of it, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They heard that they were sinners. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They told them the truth. You put Christ on the cross. Christ was on that cross for yours and my sins. What shall we do? Peter's answer was this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that all three are there. Turn from your wicked ways. Be baptized, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Faith in a potted plant will not get you to heaven. Faith in Christ alone is what saves. It says this, when that was all done, here's what they did. Those who repented of their sin, the word repent just means to turn and go another way. When they were baptized, that means to be immersed in water and pulled out. All in that faith, that belief of the gospel that only Christ can save. That Christ died for your sins. Here's what they did. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, there is a life after you coming down this aisle. We're going to give an invitation in just a moment. And people are going to come down the aisle. And that's good. And you should. But you're going to make your entire life about a moment. There's a life after that moment. A life that goes on until God returns again. To reveal who the sons of God truly are. And what Christians do after they make this confession. The Bible tells us they devoted. They were completely passionate about God's word, the apostles' teaching. But not only that, the fellowship. They were with believers. To the breaking of bread and prayers, they prayed together. And the Bible says, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What an awesome experience. God has given you the church where there are like-minded believers to care for you, to buttress up your faith, to teach you the right way to believe, to love on you when you get the worst news of your life. 
What a gift. And yet we are so cheeky to ask the question, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Fine, don't go. Tell me that you found God on the boat on Sunday. Then let the boat bury you and your mother. And don't call me. God's given you the the church. It's your gift. you got other people in this church struggling with the same sins. Says that day after day they attended the temple. We can't. Do you realize that years ago, over 20 years ago, it would have been nothing for what, what, what men and women did was, Christians, they went to church three times a week. That was the average. That was the majority. Today, the average Christian goes three times a month. When I grew up in Jim and Sandra's house, there was no question where we were going to be on Wednesday night. Bible study. And we were going to eat dinner before. You know how many baked potatoes I have eaten in my life? That's all we ever had on Wednesday night. Baked potato. Why do you think I look like a baked potato? You say, your dad, your parents, your, what about work? Oh, what about work? What about worship? That was what was drilled into us. Then we came to church on Sunday morning. We came at Sunday night. But today we talk about church. Well, we don't really have time for it. They attended the temple together and they broke bread daily in their homes. That means they actually liked the Christians that were in their church outside of the church. And their food they received with glad and generous hearts. And what did they do? They were one big chorus. Praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I hear people complain about what Christians don't do all the time. You know what? If you want to see Christians change the world, get in here with us and march side by side. Be with us. Be right here with us. Make a commitment to be and to grow. That's why we want to grow together. So that the world will hear God's glorious voice in North Miami. But these aren't one thing. Or excuse me, aren't three things. They're one. The Bible says that there is a balm in Gilead. There is a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. If you have recognized your sinfulness this morning, there is a Savior who will give you joy, who stands at the door and knocks, and that if you have heard his voice this morning, you can open the door and he will come into you. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will cleanse us of our sins, forgive us of our sins, and he will wipe away, clean us from all, all, all unrighteousness. What about the bad, bad, bad thing I did? Even that. Because if God's not going to take the really good, good, good thing, he's not going to accept or Get rid of you because of the really bad, bad, bad thing. God is here to save you.